Good morning, everybody. Everybody doing well today? Everybody excited to hear the latest message in our Angels and Demons series? I know I am, and some of you are lying to me, but that's okay. I'll take that enthusiasm wherever it comes from. I'll take it. Hey, welcome. Glad you guys are here. Um, we have a number of visitors here, so I want to take a second, just do an extra shout out. Like, thank you. Thank you for coming, for giving some of your day to come here and join us. We think that we have something really special here. The church is not the building. It's not the size of the parking lot or anything like that. The church is you. It's the people that God has called to this body. And by coming here and by gathering together, that's where church really happens. I was talking to somebody this morning who said, hey, if you love good preaching, you can come here to get that, hopefully, but you can also get that online. You can come here and get fantastic worship, but you can also get that online. From any church in the world, what you can't get is gathering together as the body of Christ and supporting and encourage one another. So I hope that's what you get when you're here, and I just love to look out and see the faces of people that I literally consider my family and my closest friends. So I'm so happy that you guys are here. And now now comes the apology part. If you're new here, I teach a little bit differently than some pastors do. Um, I teach what's called expository, which means I go in-depth into the scriptures, and there's a lot. There's a lot. And when you're teaching about a subject like angels and demons, spiritual warfare, this is something that gets misunderstood a lot. And that's why it's on my heart so much to do an entire series about it, and who knows really how long the series will go until the Lord says that we're done with it. Um, but there's so much to know. And so my biggest struggle is to try and compact what needs to be taught into a reasonable amount of time. So I'll talk a little fast. We'll cover a lot of information. But you can always go back and catch the messages, whether it's this one or previous messages, on our podcast. We've got Google Play and iTunes. We podcast there. Or you can just go to our website, which is discovercommunity.church, and check it out there. There's a link. You can just click and listen right through the website. It's super simple. So go back and catch the messages if you've missed any or if you missed something in today. But that being said, let's get right into it so I'm not burning up my time, my allotted time here. Um, I want to do a quick recap of where we've been. So angels and demons, spiritual warfare, um, gets misunderstood, gets mistaught an awful lot. So I want to clarify this. Angels and demons, spiritual warfare at its base level, boiled down to the very, very basics, is a battle between good and evil. It's really what it is. Good and evil. Okay, and there's always two sides, right? The one side representing good is our Father God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. Okay, they also have a supporting cast of angels with them. Now on the other side, we have demons, we have Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, whatever you want to call him, the prince of darkness, however many names. He's got hundreds of different names, but that represents the forces of evil, forces of darkness. Okay, so now we need to know more about this. Angels were created by God, okay? They weren't, you know, Scripture tells us that God always was, he wasn't created. He always was. But angels were created by God to do, to do certain tasks, to worship him, to serve him, but also to serve us, to be messengers to us, to be protectors in some cases of us. And demons are simply angels 
who have fallen away. Demons aren't an entirely separate created being. They are angels who in, in, in their mistaken pride decided that they were going to follow Satan who thought he was as good as or better than God. And in his pride, rise up, and he rebelled, took one-third of all angels with him. So that's what we know as demons are the one-third of angels who followed Satan in his rebellion. Okay? I told you what the, the goal of angels were, what they were created to do. Demons, on the other hand, they, their mission in life is to do everything they can, bless you, to come against what God has for us to distract us from what God has for us, to do everything they can, to whatever God wants, they want the opposite. This is the spiritual battle. And we need to understand that we are in a battle. The Bible itself, the entirety of the Bible, is largely about spiritual warfare. Gets introduced in the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis, and it goes all the way through the end. It's very much about spiritual warfare. And we as Christians... We cannot afford to stand on the sidelines and not know. Because I've said it before, you will lose 100% of the battles that you don't realize you're in. And we're in a battle, not just some days, not just on the days we recognize as being, well, that was a bad day. Pretty much got beat up today, man, spiritual warfare today. Sometimes we see that when it's head on, but it's much more subtle than that. But Scripture tells us, actually, in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And it doesn't say Tuesdays and Thursdays and only on your bad days. It's all the time, 24-7. And that's why we need to be vigilant. We need to understand because he's clever too. Last week I talked about some of the grand spiritual battles that Scripture talks about. But in reality, it's the invisible battlefield which really takes place in your mind. It's a battle for your thoughts. And that is where the primary battle is. Now, it manifests in many different ways. But primarily today, it takes place in our thoughts. If the enemy can lie to you and control your thoughts by making you believe. Now, he can't make you do anything. But he can lie to you. And we can believe those lies. He's not as powerful as God. He cannot make you do anything but you can believe his lies, and therein lies his power. That's why we need to understand that. If you're looking at the world through the eyes of the flesh, meaning just your body and what you know and your own capabilities, the eyes of the flesh are only going to see danger, danger and hopelessness and turmoil. But the eyes of the Spirit, the eyes of the Spirit that we're given through Jesus Christ in those situations, we see victory. Maybe not today, but ultimately. And we see that. And we have that assurance. And so that, that is something that we can rest upon. So through the renewed mind, which we receive when we receive the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit. And through that, the renewed mind begins working in you. You are able to see things, to discern things that the fleshly mind can't. And that's where the battle is. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So in last week's, I talked about a couple of these scriptures, Romans 12, 2. We've got that on the screen. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Okay, don't conform to this world. Be transformed. He's telling us, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, by the way. And for those of you who don't know, Romans, just like Ephesians, Thessalonians, any of those are epistles, which is a letter that was written to a particular church for a particular reason. In this case, this was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, helping them with some issues that they're going through. And so that's what we find. It's called, it's called a book or an epistle. You'll see it listed both ways. But without the renewed mind of Christ, we're actually defenseless against what the enemy wants to throw at us. We can't recognize when it's the enemy and when it's the spirit. And if you're blind to the power of the gospel, you're going to rely on earthly tools, earthly understanding to fight your battles. But when we fight spiritual battles with earthly tools, we get beat up. And that's why we find some days where we say to ourselves, man, I just feel like I got beat up today. You're using fleshly tools to fight a spiritual battle, and they don't apply. So the next scripture then, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 4, this is another one from last week. For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Instead, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. We talked about strongholds and some of those things last week, but I want to focus a little differently. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Okay, so we know what they're not. They're not the weapons of the world. Okay, nobody uses an M16 or an AR15 to go fight spiritual warfare. You're not fighting with the weapons of the world. So we know what they're not, and we know what power they have, divine power to demolish strongholds, so they're extremely powerful, but they don't look like anything that we can reach out and touch and grab. Okay, so we know what they're not. We know how powerful they are. What are they? God's armor? You reading my notes? Come on, Dot. Oh, that would be God's armor, Bob. Okay. For Give her the prize. Give her the prize. All right, so that's funny. But but now there are some in this room who are kind of groaning like another message on armor of God. Who here has heard a message on the armor of God at one point or another? Okay, more than five messages on it? Okay, it's many, many, many messages, entire Bible studies on the armor of God. There are so many, and we've heard so many messages on it because it's so important. But here's the thing. I think we misunderstand it a lot. Even with all this wealth of teaching and all this wealth of Bible studies, I've heard it mistaught. And I've certainly heard it misunderstood. Even if it was taught correctly, I've heard it misunderstood. My heart is always that it's not going to be my wisdom and my understanding that anybody ever latches on to. I want to bring what the Word says to you. I want to explain it to you in a way that's understandable and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Okay, the depth of my message's impact on your life is really only based on how much you know or trust me if it's just coming from me. But if you can trust the Word of God and I bring that to life, that's going to have impact. And that's what I pray for. That's why we don't give bulletins out. We just want you to know what God speaks to you. 
that's very important to me. So the weapons we fight with, the weapons we fight with, Ephesians 6, 10 to 11, this is going to be kind of our base scripture. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That encapsulates our fight. Okay, so let's do a little background on this. That's, that's the passage that most people are familiar with, most people have heard. But let's look at it in context. Because I talk all the time about you can't just grab a scripture and pull it out and make it say what you want it to say or use it to back up or support your point because you have quoted scripture, but you're using it wrong. You're using it inappropriately, and by that, that qualifies as false teaching. You're quoting scripture accurately. The devil did that to Jesus. For his purposes, we need to understand in context. So let's go back and look at context. First of all, this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written roughly 61, 62 AD while Paul was in prison. Paul was actually in prison in Rome when he wrote this letter. And he wrote it to this church in Ephesus trying to encourage them because they were having some problems. Now, if you remember, Ephesus, first of all, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. We would say it's in, it's in Turkey today. That's where Ephesus was. This was one of the churches that was founded by some really good friends of Paul's, Priscilla and Aquila, if you've ever heard of them. Paul travels around on his missionary journeys that we read about in the book of Acts, and he visits them. He visits Priscilla and Aquila in this church in Ephesus, and he actually, for a period of time, pastors this church. And this church is growing. Now, when Paul vacates, his good friend and his disciple Timothy comes in and pastors this church in Ephesus. So this church in Ephesus has had some pretty good leadership, would you say? And yet, they still struggle with these things. And what they're struggling with at this point when Paul writes this letter to them is some very powerful, influential men have come into this church and they're trying to teach their own doctrine and get their own way. They're causing dissension. This church is strong, it's growing, it's had a good foundation, but these men are starting to stir things up and they're starting to cause problems. And this is where we are. So now Paul has to write this letter to them to help get them back on track. He can't go, obviously, he's in prison, but he writes this letter to them and this is where we are. So I wanna go back the book of Ephesians is six chapters, okay? Six paragraphs in Paul's letter, if you will. The chapters and books are all our editions later. But it's six chapters total. I want to go through and give you a quick synopsis so that we can see why Paul finishes up with this armor of God. So the book of Ephesians chapter one, I'm just going to read these all to you, so just kind of follow along with me. Chapter one could be subtitled, We Are Redeemed Through Christ, Okay, he talks about in, in verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That's a gift. And then verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Okay, redemption, salvation, that's a gift. That's where Paul starts out this letter. He says, look, redemption and salvation, all this that you have, that's a gift that you've been given. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. It was freely given to you. Chapter 2 then, 
could be called, we're dead in our sin, but alive in Christ. And so uh, chapter two, verses one and two, Paul says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So you've been given this wonderful gift. You've been given new life because you were dead in your sins. Again, it's nothing you did. It's what was given to you. It's a gift. Then, chapter 3, unfathomable power through Christ. Verse 8 says, to me, this is Paul saying, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And verses 14 to 16 say, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So he's saying you've been given an incredible gift of redemption, of salvation, of new life, and you've been given the power through his spirit to protect it. Because somebody's always after your gifts. Always. Then, chapter 4, he goes into, okay, now that you know all these things, here's what you really need to know. Chapter 4 is unity in the body of Christ. There's he's really now addressing the problems that they're going through. Verses 1 through 3. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then verse 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. And verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Okay, don't argue. Don't think too highly of yourselves. You didn't earn this. It was a gift, and we all receive the same gift. So stop fighting. Stop arguing. Stop causing problems with one another. And then chapter 5, walk in truth and love of Christ. Verses 1 to 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You see the flow of this letter that he's writing to them. So in summary, chapters one through five, just a quick summary, these are my words. So we have been given this incredible gift of redemption and new life in Christ, along with unfathomable power in the Spirit to protect the unity of the body of believers from Satan's schemes through showing our supernatural love for one another. Supernatural love for one another is the primary weapon that Paul is talking about here. So he concludes this letter then. So after all that, He concludes this letter by emphasizing this battle by giving us encouragement, saying that you have everything you need to not only fight this battle, but to win this battle. 
And he goes in and he uses the analogy of a Roman soldier because Roman soldiers were, they were everywhere at that time and they were the, the biggest power in the world. At that time had, had really never been beaten in battle. They're basically unstoppable. And he uses them as an illustration. So Ephesians chapter 6, also often known as the armor of God chapter, okay, reads like this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand, against, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, therefore, this is after everything that he's said, he gets to the point here. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Okay, that's the entire thing, and we've probably heard that taught, and we've read that a million times. We've seen greeting cards with that on and all kinds of things. But I want to take it a step further, and I want to break this down. I want to go verse by verse and explain to you a depth of meaning that I think gets lost a lot of times. It's good enough. You read that. That's, that's good stuff. But what does that mean to me? How do I put on the armor of God? And sometimes we miss this. So this is what we're going to do. Let's break it down into these smaller bites. Let's start with Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That, this, again, this is Paul's therefore to the entire book, really. That word strong, I'm going to teach you some Greek today. So if you're new here, you're going to go away knowing a little bit of Greek. That word strong is endunimo. And dunamo. Many of us have probably heard the term dunamis. You hear the dunamis power of the Lord, right? Dunamis power is, is power through God's ability. Power through God's ability. And dunamo is the act of imparting ability. So to be strong in the Lord is an active verb, and it means to, imp- to impart Strength. God has imparted strength, but more than that, to be strong is not, it's not just now I have strength. I am strong. It's an active verb, and it means to do. It means you don't have strength. Go do strength. Okay, now it sounds awkward in our vernacular, but it's not something you have. It's something you do. Be strong. And in, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's important to know. It's not physical strength. It's got nothing to do with your size or anything like that. It's the Lord's strength. And he will impart that to you. Verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Okay, that seems fairly straightforward. Let's look at that. Full armor. That term full armor translates really as just one Greek word and it's panoplia. Panoplia literally means full armor. It means the complete set of offensive and defensive armor. 
So if you've ever heard, put on the armor of God, that's wrong. And it's important to know that it really means full armor. Why is this important? Because again, not only is it offensive, but it's defensive too. And not only does it have the power to protect you, it has the power to strengthen you. So how does putting on armor actually strengthen you as a person? Because it can protect you against things that come your way. How does it make you stronger? It's important that it's full armor, and I'm going to explain why. Roman soldiers had at their disposal tons of armor. Romans were great at designing and, and implementing armor in different armor kits, if you will, packages. But they were for different reasons. If you're a scout and you're going ahead and you're scouting out enemy positions, you're not going to wear the full armor. You're going to wear a lightweight version, maybe carry a little shield and a sword, but you're going to travel light and, and dress kind of lightly. Then there, were, there was another level up where you were going to be involved in some combat, but you had to move quickly. And so that was yet another version of armor, slightly upgraded, slightly heavier, slightly more. The full armor includes a helmet and a sword and a shield and, and metal shin guards and a breastplate and, and forearm guards. It is heavy. The full armor of God is heavy, heavy, and they trained in this full armor. They trained in their full armor, get this, wearing the full armor every day, even when you don't need it, makes you stronger. They trained for that. So when they needed it, they were strong enough for it. So when they get into battle, now's not the first time I've carried all this armor and tried to figure out how to use it. They've trained in it. They know how to carry it. They're strong enough to carry it, and they know what each piece is used for and how to use it. That's important to know. The last one, schemes of the devil. That word in Greek, the word schemes is methodeia, which is, again, a plural, which means not just one. Again, it's not just that frontal attack that comes at you that's pretty easy to identify. It's multiple attacks from multiple directions. So just when you're focusing on one attack, you see it coming, you know that's spiritual battle, and you're focused on that, guess what? He's coming at you from multiple other directions. And anything he can do to keep your eyes off of that and keep you focused on this one thing, his attacks are going to be more effective. Schemes is multiple. Always see that. It's never just one. It's from all directions all the time. So Ephesians 6.12 then, next one, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So if you remember last week or the week before, I kind of introduced that there's a hierarchy of demons. They're actually demons who have specific roles and specific things that they do. And right here, actually, Paul is, is kind of calling out those different levels, strata, the different levels of demons. And there's four of them that he's talking about here. Who can see them? First one, rulers. Powers. World forces and spiritual forces of wickedness. Some translations say against the powers and principalities, by the way. This translation, New American Standard, actually is just powers. Principalities is something that was added 
to most translations to make that sentence flow better. But really, the word just is powers, and it translates powerfully enough here. First of all, rulers, let's look at rulers. Rulers is just simply, that's Satan or Lucifer or whoever, whatever name you want to ascribe to him. That's talking about Satan. Next one, against the powers and principalities, if you want to include that, against the powers. Okay, what that is, that translates as exousia. And I mentioned this last week. Exousia means operating within a designated parameter, a designated region. Okay? And what that means or region, jurisdiction is the better word, operating within a designated jurisdiction. And that's why the word principalities comes in, because it, it indicates a, an area, okay? Again, a jurisdiction. They have certain powers that are only allowed within what God will allow them. And they can't operate outside of that. So this is where that word exousia, or powers and principalities, comes in. Okay, these are... These are the, the general wars that go on all the time, the, these demon armies that operate. And we see this referenced all the way back in, in the book of Mark, chapter 5, verse 9. This is Jesus actually talking to a demon, if you remember this. He says, what is your name? And the response is, my name is Legion, for we are many. This is the powers and principalities that we're talking about here. Okay, so the next one, world forces. World forces of this darkness, these are demons who are specifically tasked with interfering with leadership throughout the world. They will torment leaders in our country, in our states, in our cities. They torment those leaders, but they also go worldwide. And they have a lot of power and a lot of authority in those countries that are not under Jesus Christ because they have no defense against them. And so they are very powerful there. So we see countries that are not what we would call a Christian country who are led by leaders who aren't Christians and they're very vulnerable to that kind of attack. World forces of darkness. And then the last one, the spiritual forces of wickedness. These are the everyday demons. These are the ones we picture where the devil sits on your shoulder whispering something to you. Now, everybody has in their mind what wickedness is. Picture what wickedness looks like to you. There are these little temptations. That's not bad for you. Go ahead and do it. Go ahead and eat that. Go ahead and look at that. Whatever it is, these are the forces of wickedness, and it's those everyday demons that torment you and lie to you and poke at you all day long. That's what Paul's talking about here. So it is comprehensive. It's coming at you from just about every direction. Now, chapter, uh, verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Having done everything to stand firm. So that word resist in the Greek, it just means steadfastly refusing to be moved means you can't, your feet are on solid rock. You cannot be moved. You cannot be swayed. And what he's referring here to is this false teaching. If, you, if your feet are on solid rock and you are firm in that, you can't be swayed by false teaching because you'll recognize it when you see it. 
This is what he's talking about here. And then able to resist in the evil day. The evil day that he's referring to here is not end times evil day. It's not some grand battle. What it means is the inevitable evil day that comes our way all the time. He is really talking about these everyday battles that you don't know when they're going to come, but we know they're coming. This is what he's talking about here. So verse 14, Ephesians 6, 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So those of you who haven't heard, in this translation, NASB, when it's all caps like that, he's not yelling at them, okay? What that means is that that references Old Testament scripture, okay? In this case, it's the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah talked about these very things. So he's reminding them that Isaiah told you about this all this time ago. So let's talk about the first part, girding your loins. In reality, the illustration that he's using is that of a Roman soldier, again, who's getting ready for battle, okay? What, would they, what they would put on underneath everything, like now we'd put on Under Armour or something like that, right? That's not, they didn't have Under Armour back then. What they wore is a loose-fitting kind of a cotton tunic, robe, really, a lack of a better thing. And if you put on all that armor over it, you'd have all these loose ends and legs and arms and pieces flapping around, really not conducive for battle. Those loose ends could trip you up. Those loose ends could get caught on things and cause all kinds of problems. So girding your loins meant literally take all those loose ends and tuck them in. Tuck them in, tie them off, whatever you got to do. Tuck everything in, make sure everything's tight so that you don't have any loose ends. And the illustration is there, is tie up your loose ends. What does this look like in reality? Some of those things that you don't understand scripturally. I've never really understood that thing about God's elect. What does that mean? I've never really understood. Can I lose my salvation? Whatever your question is, that's a loose end. And we're to tie that up. Tie it up. Get an answer to it. Figure it out, because that's what the enemy's going to use against you. When the battle comes, without fail, the first person will come to you, and they'll ask you a question. But how do you explain? And you'll go, always wondered about that myself. That's a loose end that the enemy is going to use against you. Tie those things up. Tie them up and get ready now. Next, the breastplate of righteousness. This is, Jesus modeled this, okay? Again, this is Isaiah prophesying about, about the Messiah back then. But the breastplate of righteousness is what allows us, when we have the righteousness of Christ and we walk in that, we don't leave openings in our armor for the enemy to use, to exploit. How many times has somebody been derailed in an opportunity to serve the Lord or an opportunity to share the gospel and as they're getting ready to do it, they're reminded, oh, yeah. I was at the grocery store, and the, it said, ears of corn, three for a dollar. I took five. It can, be, it can be that simple. Anything that we do that is not righteous is a tool the enemy can use against you, and he will remind you of that. Who are you to share the gospel with somebody when you parked in a handicapped parking spot just 10 minutes ago? 
when you left your shopping cart in the grocery store and you knew it would probably bang into that car, but you were going to walk all the way back up front, whatever it is. We make a mistake if we think it's all these grandiose things. It's not. It's anything that you've, the Holy Spirit probably told you, don't leave your shopping cart there, but I'm in a hurry. The enemy will use that against you. That's the breastplate of righteousness. Then, Verse 15, and having shod your feet with a preparation of the gospel of peace. That's from Isaiah again. Isaiah 59, 17 says, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. What's the gospel of peace? The gospel of peace is often misunderstood. It's not, let's all, let's hug it out. Let's just hug it out and and go have ice cream together. The gospel of peace is actually the opposite of being at war. We are at peace with Father God through the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the gospel of peace. Through what Jesus did, we are no longer enemies of God. He's on our side. So the gospel of peace is not peaceful and gentle. It means we now have the creator of the universe, the most powerful force ever on our side to fight battles. That's what that means. The illustration here of the, of the sandals or the feet of, of them that preach peace, Roman sandals, just fun fact here, before they went into battle, it says prepare the feet. They'd prepare their sandals. They would literally take their sandals and they would hammer nails through the soles from the top down coming out the bottom, kind of like golf spikes or cleats that we would picture now, right? You know what that was for? It was for traction, but it was for traction when you plunged your sword into a body of an enemy and they were all slippery and you had to pull that sword back out. Didn't always want to come out. So you have nails on your feet to help you. That's an ugly picture, isn't it? But I say this because it's not peaceful and it's not gentle and neither is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is ugly and spiritual warfare is every bit as dangerous as the real thing. More so because the real thing can only take your life. Eternal life through Jesus is what the enemy is after. So it's much more important to that. We need to understand that God is on our side. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That is the gospel of peace. God is on your side. That's what he's telling them here. Verse 16 In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. First of all, that shield, that shield in in the description there that Paul is giving is of a of a heavy full body shield. It's actually two and a half feet wide, four and a half feet tall. Okay, probably weighed about 50 pounds, depending on which material it was made of. It was heavy. And it was meant to protect your entire body from things that would come your way, one of which was flaming arrows. Flaming arrows would come your way. Some uh, translations call them fiery darts. It's all the same thing. And this, at that time, was one of the most terrifying weapons that would come against a Roman soldier. 
Because in the middle of the night, you could be camped out, you could be relaxing in the middle of your night, and, and these fiery arrows would come shooting in, and they would start your tents on fire. Or they'd hit you, and they'd start your tunic on fire. Okay, because they were all coated with oil. These were terrifying weapons of those times. And he's saying, always take your shield, because these shields were coated with, with different fats and things like that, but they would not burn. So you could literally hold up, and, a, and an arrow would hit that shield, and it wouldn't burn. It would just burn itself out. It would extinguish. This is what he's talking about here. Faith, the word faith there translates as pistis, and pistis is faith based on experience. Specifically, faith based on experience. It's one thing to say you need to have faith in God, and, and you can be told that, but until you've seen it in action, you don't have this kind of faith. That kind of faith that will allow you to say, okay, there's a fiery arrow coming. I'm going to hold up my shield. My shield's going to stop it. I have no doubt because I've seen it happen before. That's the kind of faith he's talking about here. You can't have that kind of faith if you've never tested it before. We need to test our faith. We need to give God an opportunity to come through in those things. That's a whole other message for another day, but this is what he's talking about here. It's only that kind of faith that will allow us to extinguish those fiery attacks because we've seen it happen before, and we know he'll do it again. Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So I want to camp out on this a little bit. First of all, take... Take doesn't mean to go get it, to conquer it, to steal it, to go grab it. It means to receive what is offered. Receive what is offered, the helmet of salvation. It's through that salvation. The helmet protects the most, absolute most vital part of your body, right? If he can get to your head, pretty much game over. But that helmet of salvation, meaning we start with a basis of salvation. That allows you to face battle in a different way. I may lose my life, but my salvation is secure. He may get at me other ways, but my salvation is secure. And if you have that secure, now you're able to go into battle with a whole different mindset. That I will fight with everything that the Lord has given me. And no matter what happens, I have my salvation. Life on earth here is a blink of an eye. Salvation is eternal. And this is what he's talking about here. Knowing that you have that as your foundation, now you're going to fight differently. Next, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This one is commonly misunderstood. I've had people come up and say, they're holding a Bible in their hand. Well, I've got my sword. Okay? That's not what that means. And it's, it's, he's not trying to mince words here. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He's not trying to be tricky here. But there's two types of the Word of God. Okay, there's logos word, another Greek word. Logos means the written word. So if you're holding your Bible, you're reading your Bible, that's the logos word of God. This word here, though, is rhema. This translates as rhema, and rhema is the spoken word of the Holy Spirit directly to you. So it's not enough. I, I understand Scripture. I've got Scripture. But can you recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you? 
That's what he's talking about here. Because there's nothing that can come against you if the Holy Spirit is guiding you through every single battle. Notice also, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is the only offensive weapon in this entire description. Do you think it's a mistake or accidental that he saves it for last? Like he's gone through everything and just like, oh yeah, I forgot, Uh, they're going to need a sword. I don't think there's anything that's accidental in the word of the Lord. And the reason it's last is because without all of the other things, without all the other tools, without faith, without righteousness, without all of the other parts of the armor of God, you are not equipped to wield the sword of God. You are not equipped to use that against an enemy. Now, it's a different thing if he speaks to you and gives you guidance and direction, but to use that against an attack, you need to be equipped with all these other things. A weapon in the wrong hands is more dangerous than no weapon at all in many cases. This is what he's talking about. So, that's how that happens. So, remember my summary, chapters 1 through 5, where he says, we've been given this incredible gift of redemption and new life in Christ along with unfathomable power in the spirit to protect the unity of the body of believers from Satan's schemes through showing our supernatural love for one another. The sword of the spirit is never to be used against one another. It is a weapon to be used in the spiritual realms and to fight spiritual battles only. Never against one another. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, and he's a Christian writer. He's written tons of books, um, some very, very good books, and I'll tell you more about that later. But he has a quote, and it says this, what can you ever really know of other people's souls, of their temptations, their opportunities, their struggles? One soul in the whole of creation do you know, and it's the only one whose fate is placed in your hands. You have no idea what anybody else is going through. Just deal with your own stuff. This is what he's saying. Our fight is not with each other. So if you find yourself arguing with somebody instead of loving them, be offended, being offended by them instead of loving them, thinking me first instead of you first, If you're doing any of those things, you're operating in a spirit of pride and judgment. And church, you're doing it wrong. Because no matter what you want to think, Paul, this entire chapter and most of the Bible is about loving one another. If we don't start there, nothing else matters. If we don't wield the armor of God with love, we're going to do more damage by far. Another C.S. Lewis quote, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. The enemy will use anything and everything he can to take your eyes off of the creator. Our focus is not on the battle. Be aware of the battle. Be ready for the battle. Be dressed and prepared and trained for the battle. But our focus needs to be on Jesus. That's where our focus should be. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and head up. So a paraphrase 
for the entire thing here then is so if we're to do battle in the spiritual world, we know that we have the very power of God to protect against attacks from any direction. We won't be swayed by deception because we have been trained for this. We are ready and God is on our side. We've seen him defeat the enemy before and he'll use us to do it again. Our salvation lies in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and our love for one another. Can I get an amen? I love that. I'm going to do that more often. The full armor of God, in other words, is not something you put on when you think you're going to need it. It's something we wake up in the morning and we put on. It's something we train in and we practice in every single day so that we will be ready. This is what we need to know. Because the day will come, and that day will probably be later today. It'll be tomorrow, and it'll be the day after that. We fight alongside the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we cannot be defeated if we are wearing his armor. So as I'm going to wrap up in prayer here in just a moment, and then we're going to move into a communion. If you're new here or if it's been a while, we do communion like this. At the crosses, we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers. You just dip the cracker or the bread into the juice and you take it like that. You can serve yourself or serve your family, do that there. Up front here, we have wine and also the bread and crackers and Gabe and I will be serving up here if you would like that. Let's do this with thankful hearts. Again, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I invite you to take communion. This isn't one of those churches where I have to be a member or anything like that. We're called to take communion together every single time that we gather together. Let's do this joyfully remembering and recognizing what Jesus did for us. And then the second thing is if you don't know Jesus Christ and you're here, this is an opportunity. Because there are only two forces. There's the forces of good, the forces of evil. And make no mistake, you can't stand on the sidelines of either one of those. You're on one side or the other. And I'm not saying if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're an evil, bad person but you're defenseless. You're defenseless against those things that come your way. If you want to stand alongside the King of Kings, then he offers you that invitation to join him. And it's just as simple as declaring with your mouth and believing in your heart. That's all you have to do to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Remember that word, declare with your mouth, to say it out loud, that's powerful. Because back when the Apostle Paul wrote that, Saying that out loud in Rome was treason. You could be killed for saying that. That's the depth of meaning that that has for us. I'm gonna stand alongside the Lord. So that's the invitation. If you, if you want prayer for that, we have prayer teams stationed all along the back. Somebody could pray with you and help you understand that. I would be happy to do that afterwards if you have any questions about what that means please see somebody before you leave. We have a book back there uh, called The New Christian's Handbook, which is fantastic for new believers. It's back there. Ask for one if you want it. But the other book that we have, I've quoted it from C.S. Lewis a couple times. And he's got a book, one of my favorite books of his is called The Screwtape Letters. And if you've never heard of this book, what it is, again, C.S. Lewis is a Christian author. It's a fiction book. It's not a scary book. I wouldn't hand that out in church. But it's a great illustration of some of the interactions that demons have with each other. And, and more than that, some of the tools and the, and the tricks that they use against us. 
If you've never read that book, I would love to offer you a copy. I have a whole stack of them back there. Weston's holding one up. Um, but they're back there right next to the door. Please grab one. I have a limited supply, so if you've read it before, let someone maybe who hasn't read it, and one per family, and just share it so that we can kind of stretch them out as far. But it's a great book. It's a great illustration. I highly recommend that you read that. But let's go ahead and wrap up in prayer, and then we can move around and begin taking communion together. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that in your grace and in your mercy, you allow us to stand alongside you and do battle in the spiritual realms. This life is not all about making it as comfortable as we possibly can for ourselves. It's standing alongside you and making sure that all of our family, all of our friends, everyone that we know and everyone that we meet has the opportunity to experience salvation through Jesus. And you use us to accomplish that. So Lord, we are thankful. And we are thankful that we're not defenseless against the lies and the schemes of the enemy, but that you have given us everything that we need to stand. So Father, we thank you for that gift. We acknowledge it and we will stand with you. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to Trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me a vessel, make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing but all you have given me, Jesus.
Jesus, bring new 